0: mm <laughs> Support for this episode is brought to you by Chirpy Bird Health IT Consulting, home of the Merit-Based Incentive Payment System, or MIPS, Flight School. MIPS Flight School helps clinicians earn their highest possible MIPS score in a group coaching setting and at an affordable price. Welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast where with each episode, we hear from different women experts in the health IT industry.
1: We like to hear about what makes them tick, how they overcome challenges, work they're proud of, advice they would give to other women in health IT, and much more. I'm Joy Rios. And
0: I'm Robin Roberts. Gail Zotz joins us on today's podcast to talk about her trajectory in healthcare and how it began really early on how she has culminated into a passionate pursuit to help patients and the elderly age in place through simple design solutions. She's got a lot to say, so let's take a listen.
2: If you read your resume, it seems like I spent my entire life going towards this singular trajectory of making a difference in the health space. It was really a series of, of things that occurred to me that I got involved in, and it just turned out that I had a really deep understanding of particular parts of spaces. So um, right out of college, I started on Capitol Hill, and I was working uh, for a healthy, pe- healthy People Initiative, which every 10 years, it's renewed on what are the priorities for health. Back on working on Healthy People 2000, it was we were looking at weight and food, and which is very interesting now that we're talking again with social determinants of health, right, about the importance of food. So, a lot of this connects, um, and I had an amazing opportunity of getting to see and be a part of what occurs at the federal level in terms of health priorities. By my mid-20s, I had opened up my own agency, focused on serving health clients, particularly in the areas of big campaigns, big educational campaigns, um, big public-private partnerships. So some examples are I did a 200-part program uh, partnership with over 30 different partners on reducing the stigma of mental illness and getting help for mental health. I did a project for the Department of Labor, on employment for people with disabilities. That was a big resource and conference that went on for several years. Um, I also represented position groups and looking at working with the media and, and how we can educate people on the importance of taking care of their back, of living well, not so much in wellness as so much as in <clears throat> the combination of health and how we live our lives. And from this, I had a number of clients, and I was also working both sides. So I was working with producing for 2020 and Good Morning America and to show on, on health segments and also being a guest on some of these programs and writing. So it was an exciting time to be able to communicate on all sides. It was before social media, and one of my clients came to me and said, this is during the internet boom. If you had money, what would you do with it? So I sat down on a napkin, and that week we were walking to the bank for the first tranche of $800,000, and the focus was taking the work I had done with the Department of Labor and this question of employment and the fact that we are in work all of the time and in connection with the fact that we um, had technology just starting. I mean, this was an incredibly exciting time in the terms of what would now be maybe health IT, but was really the very beginning of technology and integrating technology with people's lives. And so it was what's called now clicks and bricks in which we had publications and we also had online, and looking at all of the areas of what it means to have a healthy and good daily experience within work. So, and, and it was really exciting. I was valued like $10, $100 million within the first year. We had 16 employees. The market crashed, went on to do consulting, for people who are looking at technology and help and where to invest and how to grow. Can I stop you for a second? and ask Of course.
3: Just, yeah, I, I'm curious because you started out by saying right out of college you went right to D.C. and then yeah. identified all of these amazing ambitious projects <laughs> that you worked on. Can you share what it is you studied and what it is that sort of set you up to be able to kind of jump right in to, you know, these huge you know, goals. Oh, all, all in my 20s. Yeah, how, how
2: does one do that? Passion, 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 lack of sleep, dedication. It, it's interesting because, so I, I actually started like at 15. I ran my first project. I raised um, $100,000 and ran a camp for economically underprivileged children. We did a video. I ran all of the fundraising. And um, it it was a project that a group of adults, I now realize they were adults since I was 15, um, had been working on for five years and hadn't gotten off the ground. So when I said, hey, give me a shot, give me a couple months, let me try, I mean, they were humoring me. And they figured they had failed for five years, so why not try it? And within two months, we had fully funded the project and made the partnership. So where this is related is the partner that I had gotten was the Greater Philadelphia Federation of Settlements, which at the time, Gerson Green, who was the founder of Head Start, was, as a retired uh, person, was running the settlements in Philadelphia. And he became my first mentor. And I, And I have to say, like if you ask me how to get somewhere, find smart people all the time, and ask them and let them guide you. I do it today. I was on the phone yesterday with someone. There are always people smarter than me who who know more about things that are willing to help mentor me. And I have put that forward just as a side note, with others, particularly women in order to help them grow. So Gersh was my first mentor. I ended up doing two more projects for him before I graduated high school. And when we were sitting and talking about the fact that I was going to college, he said, go get a good liberal arts education. He said, this will be your only chance to do it. Learn how to think, learn how to question, learn how to research, learn how to find information. And I did that. I I took a very traditional liberal arts classics education. I studied pre-1500s in an integrated semester program where we were taking all of our classes together and then went on to do that in different ages and periods from a semester in African-American studies to a semester in fine arts. The idea is that are now, what we need to know changes all of the time. It grows, especially with technology and health. And what I got out of this and what I brought forward was that I'm constantly able to, not only by natural curiosity, but also by discipline, to find the information, to question it. To read about it, to look at what the problems are, to work on solving the problems, to be able to communicate it in writing. And th- this is what prepared me. And it's, it's interesting because um, I'm in MBA books, like the case studies that MBAs have to learn when they're um, in class. And I, I did not go on and get my MBA, I did not get my MPH, um, or a number of these others. It was that. By the time I graduated college, I had already run programs that had made the New York Times, that I had already put together large groups of people. I had already done fundraising. I had already done so many things that people often don't do in their first 10 years of their career. And then combined with the education of the concept of learning how to think and really analyze, that serves me today. Now we have the Internet which means that I can go and research anything that I would like to without leaving my desk. But the difference is that I have the ability now to question, what is the source? Where is the information coming from? What's to be trusted? In health, this is a tremendous issue. I, people do not know where their health information is coming from. In technology, we're constantly trying to keep up. So the question is, can we find what we need to know, and can we process it, and can we then communicate it in a way that's meaningful to the people who need that information? And and that was that was my background Com- combined with the fact that I've always been incredibly passionate about the work. I love the work. I to me that is the fun. To me, that is where I spend the time. I like creating things and building relationships with people where people are able to work together and so that has really helped me in any piece that I needed to learn along the way like for example the financial background I now do five-year pro formas and assumptions and complicated financials and R&D it is typically an MBA who's had a number of years with a big firm and it, it's Started because when I was CEO, I had uh, my CFO, who I was paying um, a significant amount of money to, and I'm looking at the financials, and I said, how do you you explain this to me? And he said, well, that's very complicated. I said, yeah, I'm paying you a, a lot of money a month, so humor me. And for an hour, he sat down and explained to me the financials. Well, within five years, I was professionally doing financials and financial analysis on behalf of others. So it's really the question of are you willing to learn? Are you willing to grow? Are you willing to say that it's something that you don't know? Are you willing to find people who know more than you do about each area? Are you willing to take the time to research and question what you're researching and where the information is coming from? Can you process it? Can you solve the problems? And can you then communicate them?
3: Considering that you don't hear that often that people encourage somebody to get a liberal arts degree. So kudos to your mentor for for recommending that because it really does help think about the world and question everything and sort of figure things out. I like that a lot. And then I just wanted to comment because I found you through the healthcare leader Twitter chat and uh-huh. all of the things that you're saying, your passion and even the way like your empathy, the way that you show up in service for others, it shows Gail, like it is something that
2: like beams from you. So thank you. I, I would love to write that down. That's really beautiful. I mean, the showing up for others is perhaps one of the highest compliments you could pay me, you know, to, we are so separated in today's world, even worse. And finally, we're just starting to discuss it lightly within the social determinants of health. But the World Health Organization has always viewed health as a continuum that everyone is on, and that that is not just if you have a medical diagnosis or a disease, but what is going on in your home? Are you safe? Are you being beaten? Do you have a roof over your head? Can you eat? Can you get do you have transportation? Do you have shoes? so many factors that go into this. And a huge component is social. Do you have social support? Do you have people that you can go to? Are you part of a community? And we often do not have that in today's world. We're so separated. I walk into a room, and I'm a technology person, but I walk into a coffee shop or a student union, and everyone's sitting across from each other looking at their phones. And not engaging. And so, especially in health, but if you define health in this broader sense that I'm talking about, which includes are you safe? Are you fed? Are you, you know, are you emotionally well? Are you growing? Like every component is that too often we do not have the someone or feel that we have someone to be able to say, actually, i'm struggling and i think that as we look at mentorship particularly women to women that we need to bring back that level of humanity and say i'm here i'm not judging you and i am not viewing this within the total context of who you are so if you're the ceo if you're an inventor if you are in a government position, that does not mean that it's still not safe to talk about what's going on with your marriage or your children or your home life or your wellness. I'm not saying to talk about all of this publicly. I'm saying that we need to reconnect individually and know that regardless of our outward accomplishments that we can support each other in the other areas also. (laughs) <laughs> absolutely I, I yeah.
3: wholeheartedly agree with all of that
2: about ten years ago I saw that social media was was starting it was really starting to take off and I got on early and it was interesting when I got onto Twitter people would look at me and they'd say what are you doing I thought you're in health like what, what you're tweeting like I said actually this is just the next stage of work I mean I saw early on that social media was going to be a major form of communication, and being primarily what I viewed as myself in communications, although that definition has grown tremendously because I really do a lot more strategic work now. It seemed for me natural to go on to social media, and I was fortunate, had some tremendous communities and really grew in different areas in terms of social media was building uh, communities on social media as well as online. And then my heart staff in my life. I had been getting sicker over the years, which is also what brought me into the whole health and design space. So I started needing a wheelchair more and more. I had, had multiple back surgeries. They I was in a brace for a year and unable to walk. They thought that my inability to walk was connected to the back and the other symptoms that I was having were somehow ancillary. And because of my age, I was denied a basic mammogram. This <laughs> actually matters. I'm in healthcare I went to the doctor. I said, here are my symptoms. I would like a mammogram. And he said, oh, you're too young. And so so it went on. But as I was needing the wheelchair more, I started looking at the world differently and realizing how inaccessible the world was. I mean, this is not about having just perking spots. We don't even have the curb cuts, which enable somebody to get on and off of a sidewalk in the vast majority of routes. It, it's ridiculous. So while talking to people online about problems, I'm, I'm good about talking about problems. I'm much better about finding solutions. And I started hearing some of the same issues, you know, outcomes problems and um, other health issues that were being repeated again and again. So I started looking at, well, how do we solve these outcomes issues? And I put together 31 different design elements, which was everything from accessibility to ergonomics to industrial design and um, patient-centered or user-centered design policy. I mean, all of these different design thinking areas. And I connected them because there was decades In sensory alone, there was decades of outcomes research that had shown that if we change our environment, that we can directly and heavily impact outcomes. I just, one of my, one of the ones that I go on about a lot is fall prevention. The, over half of all accidents that occur in the home occur in the bathroom that lead to the emergency room. When you get to the emergency room, If you are over 65 and admitted, your average stay is 18 days. And if you've been admitted for that average stay of 18 days and you're over 65, you have a 50% morbidity rate. 50% of people will die who go into the hospital because they fell in their bathroom because no one put up a $100 grab bar. Okay, so this may not be so sexy, but to me, if we're talking about improving health outcomes, this became really important. And so, and I I was working on all of these. I had another mentor, many mentors. I, I can't speak highly enough about it. And she had worked for NIS, and I put together all of my work, um, on these different areas. And I said, Carol, I don't think I really was the first person to come up with this, but can you run it by your research team? She came back to me an hour. She said, yep, you're the first one you should publish. So I was I was moving in that direction. I was also getting sick. And then I started getting sick faster. Um, and I went to the doctor. He said, you're not safe to live at home. And they wanted to send me to hospice. For those who do not know, hospice is where you go to die. Hospice is where they make you comfortable so that you can die with dignity. I, I think very highly of hospice and palliative care. I'm just saying that the decision made by the team at that time was that there was nothing they could do and that I should accept my dying. They brought in a security team to try to get me to get onto the wheelchair to go to the hospice, which I refused because I knew my rights. They brought in a psychiatrist to get me to accept my situation, you know, so that I could die with dignity and say goodbye to my four minor children who I was a single parent of, right, (laughs) that I should like nicely say goodbye to my children and somehow write something that would make this okay with their life. Five days later, I knew about that utilization. So five days later, I'm still in a bed because I refused to get up. So the bed utilization person called them and said, get her out of the bed. You just have her there as a transfer. Transfer her somewhere that she's willing to go. I went to a nursing home, which had many things to say about what we can do about the skilled nursing and home health um, industries. It was not uh, an easy experience for me. But from this, they learned that I was very serious about fighting, that I was very engaged, and they also found that I had aggressively metastasized cancer. So, <laughs> how, did they after.
1: Find, how did they finally find that, Gail? Because you're talking about fighting for the mammogram and that it's denied, that based on age, it's not routine. So they're not willing to order it under those guidelines. How did they finally find the cancer?
2: Well, um, by that point, I was extremely sick. And I had said that I was not willing to go to hospice, so they were more willing to do more tests. And the, I mean the, <clears throat> the um, scans and the biopsies, everything was done in a day. And I was actually called by a scheduler, um, who said, "So we're calling to schedule for an urgent appointment with oncology." And I said, "So does that mean I have cancer?" They said, yeah, didn't somebody tell you you have aggressively metastasized ductal carcinoma? I said, ah, no one told me. <laughs> so, I, again, I could talk about, like, what we can do in terms of patient communications on the journey, right? So, so because of the test, and then I got connected with an excellent, excellent oncology team and a palliative team, which I think every healthcare system should have, Um They, in in my team structure, I was at the University of Minnesota. um, You have a physician, a care coordinator, a nurse care coordinator, and a social worker on every team, a structure that I can't advocate for enough. And I met in one day after everything had been confirmed with both my oncology team and my palliative team who worked together. And they have said about that first meeting that when I met with everyone, I said, look, I will do whatever you recommend. I will not Google it. I will not ask for a second opinion. I will not research it, which goes completely against my nature, right? I said, I will trust you, but I need you to believe that I'm going to live. So if we can come to that agreement that you're going to treat me as if I'm going to live, then I'm all in. So they still talk about this conversation. So even though um, the paperwork all said my prognosis was poor, 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 which is the medical terminology for dying, um, they treated me aggressively, really, really aggressively. As a, a combination between the cancer and the treatments, I went blind. I couldn't eat. I went blind, like legally blind. I couldn't eat. I had like almost very little body function. I was completely in the electric wheelchair. I received weekly chemotherapy. I ended up with five different types of chemotherapy. The last primary ingredient was mustard gas, but I have reached the the legal limitation on how much mustard gas I can have put into my body. I've been a courageous surgeon. Who felt that the tumors had stopped metastasizing and were sort of operable? They were they were not operable when it was first diagnosed. He was willing to take out the remaining tumors, with the understanding that I may lose my left arm. And so, when I woke up from the surgery, the first thing I do is look down at my left hand. I'm like, it's there. So um, so at that point, yeah, when he he removed the cancer, that became the beginning of what's called NED, which is no evidence of disease. But many people do not realize that that is not the end of necessarily the path for somebody with advanced cancer. It was after that that I then had aggressive radiation, and um, I needed restorative surgeries because I'd lost a quarter like a, a big chunk of my cardi- of my vascular system, so we had to put in vascular from elsewhere, um, and then that ended up with a whole bunch of infections, which I also talk about because while the inf- the hospital borne infections are um, very invasive and very difficult, there are many things we can do to keep them down, and. I mean, I had both MRSA and C. diff, and they're they're nasty. But the the thing is that there are protocols that we can follow to keep them contained. And the thing is that sepsis is actually the leading cause of death. So while we talk more frequently about cancer, heart failure, a lot of the problem is that people get massive infections as a result of care and treatment, and we can't stop them. So, again, it, a lot of it was me looking through, and I was trying to survive, and I was doing it on my own. Um, I did not have a spouse or significant other, which is also a really interesting part of healthcare, of what occurs when there is not the significant other. I talk about it like the empty chair. because so if you go into a doctor's office or a clinic or even a surgical room, you'll notice that there's another chair there. And the chair is for the caregiver, significant other, spouse, other person who is receiving information, understanding it, helping make decisions, supporting the patient during the 23 hours when there's nobody there because they're taking care of other patients. And so what does it look like during the journey? What can we do when that chair is empty? Um, so, and while I was doing this, I was looking through the lens of somebody who had been trying to solve problems in healthcare for a long time. Even though I was young, as you noted, I've been at this from a really young age and I didn't want anesthesia all the time. I've had over 50 surgeries. My body was really worn down. I didn't want to be put asleep for every single procedure if it wasn't necessary, particularly the ones that are less than an hour. And so the physician said, you know, if you think you can manage, we can do these minor procedures in the room with a scalpel. So I think minor procedure is always a funny word, right? They're still cutting you with a scalpel, but (laughs) it's minor. So in order for me to function during that without anesthesia, I started talking about areas that I was passionate about that were not particularly emotional. Some people call it mindfulness. Some people call it positive dissociation. It was my survival technique. My mind has always been a saving grace for me. So while I'm being cut, I would start talking about these areas that I started talking to you about. Fall prevention and the nurse's centers being separated and the use of a whiteboard and how we're integrating with electronic medical records. Okay, I sound a little strange, but this is what I did. I, I was talking about it while they were operating so that I wouldn't have to focus on the pain. So a few of these in, I look up before the surgeon starts, and there's 15 doctors in the room, doctors and fellows, and and I said, this is not a very interesting procedure. And they said, yeah, we hear you give talks. So, <laughs> honestly, That's amazing. This is, so I'm laying in the bed being cut open. I'm like, okay. But so like, do you take requests for topics? I'm like, sure, try me. And there I am giving like this lengthy talk about fall prevention. I'm sewn back up. I'm fine. The doctors are still there. And I'm answering questions from the bed. So, you know, if you ask, I, I mean, for me, making a difference and being impactful, for me, it is a part of survival. Because for me, a quality life that has purpose and meaning and, and helps other people is the life most valued to be lived. And, and so while I continued to fight for my children and my own internal drive, I did it the third part because of the fact that I felt that there was more to do. And so completely well... I can, I can talk more about it if you want, but jump forward completely well. I walked 10 miles. I did the 5K for uh, cancer this Mother's Day. I, um, I got rid of the wheelchairs and all the medical equipment. I see fine. Um, the eye doctor said he just couldn't believe it. He had never seen somebody regain their vision like that. And uh, people have no idea. When they see me, they're like, what? What do you mean you were sick? It wasn't that bad, right? I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> it was bad. And it was interesting because I was talking to somebody yesterday, a colleague that I have deep admiration for. And he said, I can't believe you got out of all of this. And you came back to health care. <laughs> You know, that this is like where you are dedicating your time to. He said, you could choose any other industry. I said, I said I really believe there's a lot that I can do, and there's a lot that has to be done. And So, so
1: one so, thing that shows yeah. up for me, Gail, you do a really great job of what I've observed in social media and from what I've read about you about connecting those dots. And so now you come back and you have this additional lens to look through, these other dots to connect through, both a painful, frustrating, remarkable, and complicated journey of, of you know getting to the right diagnosis and everything that came with that when really they just wanted you to resign yourself to hospice as a young mom. What do you go do after that and what are you doing now?
2: Yeah, so I'm, I'm helping, I, and it's interesting, just as a sidebar, when I came back into the workplace, I at first did not talk about my, my cancer. And I started to realize that when I was talking to people who care about changing the needle in health, the fact that I had such a deep personal understanding of the patient journey, they viewed as something positive, an asset to add to, which I believe it is. It, um, it was just nice to see when I re-entered work that people thought the combination of professional and personal experience could add a deep understanding of the patient journey. So what? So what? So what I'm working on right now is continues a lot of the work that I was doing before um, I got sick, and then also added to a deeper understanding from what I was on on the patient journey, which is bringing as many solutions to market that can solve these problems for health, particularly what is called social determinants of health. There's a lot of funding available right now for it, finally, um, and there's a lot of opportunity. And I, and as you pointed out, I have a deep, deep understanding of what the needs are uh, from professional and personal. I understand all of these different components of home health and nursing homes and assisted living. And how hospitals would become acute care centers. And before this, I was speaking to large trade organizations, and associations, anyway, about what people call aging in place, don't love the term, call it living in place, maybe don't love the term, but some people call it universal design. Um, The idea goes back to what I was talking about, which is our environment. Has a very very deep impact on on how we function and how we live, and so while some companies may be creating technology and then trying to sell it to hospitals, um, that is not sort of the space that I prefer to work in. Where I'm working is where people come with either a solution that is in some phase of development, may have gotten patents, um, may have gone through prototypes, and they want to look at how do we bring it to market in a meaningful way? So how do we solve real needs that are needed now? And it turns out we can be profitable doing that, right? So I'm a social enterprise human being. I would love to see B Corps have some teeth. I don't know if it's going to happen in my lifetime. Um, But regardless of whether or not there is that particular tax benefit of the B Corp, I wholeheartedly believe, as I believe in life with mission, I believe in business with mission. I spent a tremendous amount of my life in business, and I want it to mean something. And so I work with companies that share that value system of wanting to run companies with mission and be profitable, meaning it does not need to be an either-or. Profit is not the big, bad, evil that people would like it to be. Sometimes nonprofits do a terrible job delivering solutions and being fiscally responsible. So the question is that plus when you bring something To market that is profitable you are able to do more positive for for your mission so you know one of my clients is for example using AI for 3d printing of healthy housing Um, it's really cool (laughs) a lot of the things available are very cool that I work on right I mean sensors that are in the home that can do diagnostics using AI to be better with caregivers, making mixed-use facilities so that we can have our health and different levels of housing and be able to go to the pharmacy and go to the social club all together, Um, enriching people's lives in many, many ways, as well as making sure that the basics are met. There are so many interesting and exciting ways that we're applying technology to making this happen, as long as we understand that the technology is a tool. So I work in AI. I work in robotics. I work with complicated scientific areas like mass spec and, and other areas that people get very excited about the names. And I will still tell you that these are tools. They're exciting, sexy, fun tools, but they're tools towards, are we providing better outcomes? And even more importantly, are we allowing those outcomes to be decided upon by the patients themselves? So survivability to me, that may be an accessible outcome to a particular set of healthcare providers or researchers, but ask the patient, is your goal to survive? What is the lifestyle that you want in order to have five more years of survival? So I would say that it is outcomes based on what is viewed as the best possible outcomes for the patient, which guess what? Requires communication, right? So no matter how good your technology is, you still need to be able to communicate at a very basic level and a one-on-one. I have been talking for years about the fact that we need to honor the trusted relationship between the patient and the physician. We have lost that. And that is from someone who you've pointed out, who's won. Thank you very much, everyone. Many awards in health information technology, in social media, in, you know, people to follow in healthcare. I'm honored by all of the awards. I really am. I'm more honored by the fact that people think that I've built relationships and brought value even if it's online, because my goal is that when you bring that value and you build the relationships, so that you take that offline in one way or another so that it makes stronger personal relationships. And because I'm in business and I, I believe, I, I believe that profit promotes innovation. And I believe that innovation promotes moving us forward in a culture of health, as the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation calls it. You know, that that these are stepping stones, and the end result is a one-on-one relationship in which both parties view it as having been better. And business plays a vital role. Innovators play a vital role in this. Um, Engineers and technology people, they play a very important role. The the question is that when they create something really incredible in a lab or in a plant or in a university, how is that connected to the workflow of providers? How is that connected to a patient journey? Are we including patients and healthcare providers in the process? because if we're doing all of those things then we're ending up with a much, much better solution, more profitable. Yes. And also better for patients, healthcare providers, the health system, our fiscal responsibility as a nation and what we're losing in what we're spending in healthcare versus what we're actually accomplishing. So I do not think it's one or the other. And I think because of that businesses who share, my value system where we come to the relationship separately comes to me because of this, not only because of my expertise in the space, which I can certainly talk about the 65 and over space for days. Um, But because of the fact that I value where we make the biggest impact on this. And at the same time, I think that, part of why we are so innovative is because we respect the ability of organizations to be profitable, that profit is not a bad word. And that, yes, I will seek to make anyone that I work with profitable as quickly as possible, as long as it is in line with a value system. And this is where social enterprise comes into play. As long as it's aligned with a value system that is of the best interest to the people we serve. And the people we serve are patients like me.
1: Yeah. I could not agree with you more. I have a real appreciation, both from the consumer side and our son being diagnosed with a rare disease that basically took him from a perfectly healthy toddler to event-dependent quadriplegic for a disease with no known etiology, no known cure, no theragnostics. Um, the involvement of, you know, nine specialists, a primary care doctor, including palliative care and hospice, the home health, the fact that we basically became, you know, round-the-clock PICU nurses um, as a result of this, that when you talk about, as, as an entrepreneur, I have an appreciation for, you know, the profit, the business side, and aligning the values, but at the end of the day, that practical utilization that is leading to a better outcome predicated on patient involvement and in their goals, which are hardly ever, if ever at all asked about um, yeah. and what that looks like when it comes out the other side. And I think that's where we see the cream rising to the top. And I'm sure obviously being able to look through so many lenses through all of that passion, all of that energy, all of that lack of sleep in your own personal journey um I just applaud you that that hybrid mentality is guiding you now that's really really cool um i am going to transition to our question two in interest of time or i'll let joy take question two. joy you want to go ahead sure and thank you by the way thank you for what you just said
3: all right so gail we asked all of our guests we'd like to know and i think that you know curious to hear what your answer is that if you could, you know, put on your magical thinking hat, and if time, money, resources were a non-issue, and you could solve one problem in healthcare or health IT, what would it be, and why would you choose that?
2: I would make every home livable, regardless of age or ability or economic standing, 100%. I, that means, I mean, visible standards are that you have one entrance that doesn't have a step, that you have one bathroom that you can use even if you're in a wheelchair and that you have sleeping on the first floor. That's great and I support it all the time. With technology today, with what we're able to do, your entire environment can be supporting you having the best quality of life, the healthiest life, regardless of where you're at on the spectrum, or where you're at in age, within your home, with dignity and independence. Ah, yeah, that would be that would be my um, everyone. You know what what did they used to say that like every everybody should get like a piece of bread or something like that, a loaf of bread for every person. I mean, I, I think that this idea of Us having design technology included, right? Because we can now, there's no reason why our Google Homes and our Alexa and whatever are also not integrating with our care team and emergency response and with our caregivers and and, and what we need for ourselves, you know, if you need to check your blood sugar level. You should be able to do that without even thought. But you should also be able to cook. Or be able to do whatever you do in your environment and leave your environment, not become isolated because it's just too much work to get out, which is what happens so much. I mean, this sense of isolation is not a concept. Millions and millions, tens and tens of millions of people in the U.S. are becoming more and more isolated every day because we are not creating environments. That they can function and successfully and leave and go out into the community like they would like to. We are creating instead of a culture of health by making people prisoners in their own environments. And part of that is education for individuals. A lot of times, when people hear about whatever accessibility or universal design or um, integrated technology, I mean, I. It was just part of a conversation where there was a question of whether or not we use alert systems, whether that's invasive. Well, and my, my response was, why don't we ask the people who need it? Would you rather stay at home and live a safe and independent life? And we have this safety net in which if you leave the fire on, on your stove, somebody is alerted and the stove is turned off. And technology today can do that. It's just that if we're not thinking about the patient journey by the time they are sick enough to be in an acute care center, we are definitely not thinking about the fact that every one of us is patients or one event away from being acute patients and that we pay we buy life insurance. We buy we buy death insurance in the terms of buying our sanitary flats, we buy driving insurance, we buy fire insurance, we, we do all of these things to think about the fact that something bad may occur in our lives, and we're going to insure against it. Let's use what we already know about design, technology, integration, the way people work, what occupational therapists have been talking about for years from before there was technology, and what's now available to be so smooth in someone's life with the advent of technology, why are we not making that our primary insurance? Because it only takes a fall or a diagnosis. A 15-year-old can go skiing and be in perfect health and be immobilized for months. So you're, you're giving me my dream? I would like to have to stop talking about this. I would like it to be so, like, natural that people get around their environments and they integrate so much that they can have the most independent lives at home with dignity, where it is done so often that we don't even think to discuss it. There you, you know, go. That's how I send
3: it. That's a great answer. And you're talking about, you know, different technologies and what it is that we can incorporate into our lives to, to make access and communication easier. But pulling back to the idea of just simplicity in the design itself and thinking, yeah. I mean, I'm sitting here doing mental checks. Like, do I have one entrance to my house that doesn't have a step? And I'm, I'm like, thankfully I do. Uh, but how big of a difference is that going to make in my life if and when I'm ever in a wheelchair and need to leave my home? Like you're making really, like that doesn't require technology to have a Correct. door that doesn't have steps. So I really like that point and the thought around like, oh, it's not all about how can we fix it with some gadget because this, do it, than that.
2: I I agree completely. And the, the other thing is, I mean, there's, there's so many areas that, you know, you use the example of wheelchair, which people do often. And I was in an electric wheelchair, so I have a different perspective on it. However, that said, less than 2% of the population, thank God, needs to go into an electric wheelchair. So sometimes we think about design and technology in terms of this really smaller percentage. 100% of people over 65 lose some level of their vision. Everyone loses their vision ability as they age. You see it, people put on the reading glasses, people. So why aren't we talking about lighting? I mean that is the most simple basic thing we can put, we can put pop up task lights uh, task task lights up for under 10 dollars. And so there's so sometimes and then I could add the technology to that with making it so that when you're at a task it the the home or the environment the car whatever ensures that you have enough light to do that task. So the technology can help achieve it. But the end result serves 100% of the population by making sure we have enough light so that we can read and so that we can see things. You see, they're all tools to me because the end result for me is not a hashtag, right? The end result for me is better quality of life. No, that's, um,
1: I'm, I'm taking notes as you're writing, and I like that, that the end result for you is, is not a hashtag. Um, Transitioning towards our third question, you said yourself directly what we need to know changes all the time, especially yeah. in healthcare and tech. What do you read? How do you keep up? And maybe what have you read personally that's
2: had a, a great impact on your life? Um, in the space or impacts on life in general? I mean, impacts on life in general, I go back to Viktor Frankl's book on meaning and purpose. I will, it's a very small book. And to me, I mean, if people say, you know, what's the one book that, that you would recommend that could change a life, it would be this book. It's, um, man's search for meaning. Um, just the, he was a psycholo- psychologist who went through the Holocaust. And also had his concepts before he went through the Holocaust, and then tested it in his own way of survival while he was in the camps, of watching who survived and who did not survive, and then republished his book that had been lost while he was in the Holocaust afterwards. And the lump sum is something that I was talking about earlier, which is the fact that When we have purpose when we have meaning, when we have something that we feel is really important to the world and to others, that that alone can be the basis for our survival and our ability to survive as people. So that would be my singular book. What do I read? Um, You know, my... Looking at my screen, one, two, three, four, five, oh, I can't even count. I have like 25 tabs open right now, and I'm I'm constantly looking for wherever there is information that applies to any problem that I'm working to solve or any problem I'm interested in, which is constant and endless. There's not one particular like journal that I read over others if that's what you're asking. I look for all of the potential of where there's information that's directly related to whatever question happens to me in my mind at that second. And then I'll add in the fact that I am active on social media and that is reading and talking with people about what matters to individuals as well as what's going on in the industry. And what I like about that is that it's not a one way conversation, like reading an article. And I come from traditional media, right? I come from television and prints and magazines and all of that. And what I love about the idea with social media, many things, but one is that I can read something, I can get information or I can ask for the information, which I do. I say, you know, does anybody know this? Um, and then not only can i read it and digest it but then i can have a conversation about it and ask questions so i really enjoy the the back and forth of being able to not only digest information but then to be able to get feedback and input in real time
3: well that's definitely how you came onto my radar was through <laughs> twitter and you were definitely outspoken so for any of our <laughs> <laughs>
2: That's right, shy thing. and demure, that's my thing. <laughs> <laughs> At least the thing, you know, I'd be interested. Do I appear as we're talking as I appeared on social media? Oh, that's an interesting, yes, I think you do. I mean,
3: um, the some of the conversations that really stood out to me was the work that you were doing, I want to say, for refugees. That was something that, like,
2: landed with me. Is that an um, Sex trafficking. I did. I did work. Yeah. I saved some kids from sex trafficking, which was really a honor. Um, thank you. That uh-huh. uh, people say to me, "How do all these things come to you?" I'm like, ah, I think the universe like knows that I'm willing to like take it on. So, you know, this week I got to save two kids from, from sex trafficking, and that was really amazing. Um, I mean, if the reason is, like, I asked the question is that I think that that the whole point is being we overuse the word authentic. Right? we overuse and misuse the word transparent but who you see in a tweet from me should be and i believe the vast majority of the time is who you will hear and see when you meet me in person almost all of the time and that that i think that social media and other communications really are starving for that level of Again, an overused word, but we are starving for authenticity. We are starving for real relationships. And there is no reason, even if it isn't a tweet or a message, that we cannot completely deliver transparency to other people by putting ourselves into it, by being our real selves and communicating in that way. I can
3: see that, and I definitely see your willingness to put yourself out there and just, you know, be present um, as you, as yourself. So on that note, Gail, if people want to find you, if they do want to work with you, if they just want to connect or maybe have a two-way conversation with you, what are your social media handles? How can they do so?
2: At Gail Zotts is always the way to find me on any social media. I'm fortunate to have an unusual name. So G-A-I-L-Z-A-H-T-Z.
1: Gail, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for sharing more about your journey and everything that's gone on and what you're doing now. It was great to speak Ah, with you.
2: It's such my pleasure. Thank you,
1: And thank you for listening to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. If you want to know more about us or this guest, check out our website at hitlikeagirlpod.com. While you're at it, if you found value in this
0: episode, we'd appreciate a ratings on iTunes or simply tell a friend. You can also connect with us on Twitter or Instagram at the handle Hit Like a Girl Pod. Thanks again. See you soon. Thank you to Chirpy Bird Health IT Consulting. You can find out more about them at www.chirpybirdinc.com.